So we've been looking through Ephesians, probably be here in the summer and the fall as we think about where we are in the life of the church. There's no better book in the Bible to give you a vision of what the church is supposed to be and what God desires for her than the book of Ephesians. And so we're in chapter 1, and this morning we're going to continue looking at verses 15 through 23. Now, we have, a, we have a saying, a cliche, it's ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. And uh, sometimes that's true, but there's sometimes where ignorance is not helpful. It's not bliss. Several years ago when we were in Louisville, I was performing a wedding, and at our table at the wedding was the vice president of the Louisville Water Authority. And in that community at that time, um, Louisville's a very kind of health-conscious or health-aware uh, community. And uh, at that time, there was a lot of public uh, angst about the water. So the city was over 100, 120 years old. The original pipes were over 100 years old, and there was different corrosion, and there was uh, many people very alarmed about the different levels of toxins that were in the, uh, that was contaminating the water. And uh, one of the way I relieve tension is I try and make jokes, and often they're bad and puts us in awkward situations. And so I, we were sitting with the vice president, and I said, well, if, if, um, if I knew what you knew, or, or what, what, if I was in your position, what would keep me awake at night? And uh, he looked at me and said, if you were in my position, you wouldn't sleep at night. And I started laughing, and he didn't laugh back. And he said, no, I'm serious. You wouldn't sleep at night. But we're working really hard to make sure you can stay ignorant. Because you can be ignorant. You can be blissfully unaware of all of the things that are going around you. Now, that actually didn't make me feel any better. Because there's just certain things you don't need to be ignorant of. There's certain things you need to know. Like, for example, with cancer, you don't want to be ignorant of whether or not it's in your body. One of the best ways to treat it is early detection. Or if you have mold growing in your home, you don't want to be ignorant of those things. You need to know if there's toxins in your water that you're drinking. If somebody has stolen your identity... You need to know about these things because there's just certain realities where ignorance is not bliss. It's actually destructive. And what Paul is going to tell us here in Ephesians chapter 1 is that there's certain realities about who God is and who you are that you have to know. And if you want to grow to maturity and to be mature and to be strong and to be healthy and to be holy, you're going to have to know these things. You're going to have to grow. So let's look first, let's just get the big picture of chapter 1 in our mind so we can kind of see, all right, what are we looking at? And then we're going to look at how Paul is praying for the Ephesians and for us to grow in the knowledge of who the Lord is. So as you look at chapter 1, what he does is two grand large sentences, verse 3 through 14 and then verse 15 through 23. And the first large sentence is this grand um, benediction, this praise and then the second section is all intercession, where he's praying for uh, the Ephesians. So it's praise to God and then prayer for people. And if you think about it, those are the two fundamental realities you need for a healthy soul. 
a soul that lifts up praise to God and then praise for people. Everything begins with praise to God for who he is and what he's done, his work in Christ. Because if you're going to be healthy, you have to know that this is the starting point for everything else. Everything begins with who God is and what he's done. If you start with who you are and what you need, you're going to end up um, being lost in the wilderness. You're going to wander through the desert. But it begins with who he is. And that's what verse uh, 3 through uh, 14 are all about, what God has done. And then he goes into this, this great intercession where he's praying for the church, praying for us, praying for the people who are going to read and receive this letter. And it's interesting as you look throughout Ephesians how central prayer is to what he wants the church to be and to do and to become. It's very, it's, it is the fundamental, central reality. Ephesians has two great messages. Chapters uh, 2 and 3 are all about, it's all about this new society, this new people that God is forming by His grace through His Spirit. And chapters 2 and 3 are all about the formation of that people how they come into being. He raised them individually from spiritual death to life, and then they formed them into this one new humanity. But it begins with prayer. Prayer begins, then he launches into this explanation about how God is forming a new people. And then the end of chapter 3 is another great prayer, and then he launches into what, that, what God expects that new people to be like, how he expects them to live. So both um, realities, how we become uh, alive, and then what he expects us to do are uh, fueled by prayer. They begin with prayer. And what you see in chapter 1 is the way Paul is motivated is first he sees what God has done through Christ, and then that launches him into prayer. And then he sees people, who they are and what they need, or that launches him into praise. And then as he sees people, that launches him into prayer. So the natural response to when you see how God has worked is to praise Him. And the natural response is when you see other people, who they are and what they need, is to pray for them. So we see these two big pieces. And what's interesting here, there's a couple just fascinating things as you look through it. One of the reasons we love, or I love the name Trinity, is because at the core, I believe at the core of all reality is the Trinity. The triune God is the core reality of which everything else grows out of. And you can see that reality in both the praise and the prayer. In both sections, in verse 3, he prays to God, the, or he prays in verse 15 to God the Father, and he praises God the Father. Both prayer and praise are fueled by the work of the Son, and then they're both empowered by the work of the Spirit. So this Trinitarian structure gives order and direction to both. But what I want you to see as we look into this, let's start in verse 15. What I want you to look for is what is the central thing that he is praying for them? What is the fundamental thing he wants them to know, to do, to experience, to have in their life? For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of his heart, our, your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of the, he who has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what I want you to see here is, do you notice the central thing that Paul is praying for them, the number one thing that he wants them to know and to experience is to know God to know him. That is the ultimate prayer. That's his supreme ambition. Everything else falls under that. And what's interesting is when you look through all of Paul's prayers for the churches that he prays for, all the ones in Ephesians and Colossians and Thessalonians, and you can can look at the different prayers, the central thing that he wants for them is to grow in their knowledge of who God is. Now, have you ever thought about your own life? And is, is that the central thing that you want in your own life? His supreme ambition was to increase, uh, have their knowledge of who God is increase. And is that our supreme ambition? Is that your supreme ambition? Is that the supreme ambition for your kids? Think about your children and what you want for them. I mean, do you just simply want a small thing like them just to, you know, be healthy, happy, functioning, contributing members of society? Or do you want something bigger for who they are and what they're going to be with and do with their life? What Paul wants for them is he wants them to know the Lord, to know him, and have that knowledge increase in in power. And it's interesting because in all of these prayers, he never actually prays that they would have their their actual circumstances changed. That's not a bad thing to pray for. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But what's fascinating is Paul over and over prays that you would grow in your knowledge of him, that knowledge of him, the knowledge that comes through experience and is fueled by understanding is the supreme thing that he wants for their life, the main thing. Now, as we look at the way he unpacks this, this prayer uh, that he's praying for, there's actually six gifts that he asks the Spirit to give them, and then there's these four acts of power that fuel the giving of the gifts. So it's kind of convoluted, so we're going to have to try and like navigate all these things and see if we can put them together. But look first at the six gifts he's asking for. So Timothy, pull up, uh, I think we got the first three. So look, first three, or he's praying for a spirit of wisdom in 17, revelation in the knowledge of him, then in 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. So he wants wisdom, revelation, eyes of heart enlightened, and then he goes in three more, beginning in 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. So he's praying, I I want you to have wisdom, revelation, the eyes of your heart enlightened, then you have to know the hope, the riches, and the power And then he's going to give you four things that kind of fuel all of these things. Because once he starts talking about the power, that then gets him thinking about the power that God displayed through Christ. So look in verse 20. It's the same power that God worked in Christ when he... And then there's four verbs that key in on what God did for Christ to display his power. He raised him from the dead. He seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places which are far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he submitted or he put under all things under his feet. And then he appointed or gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. So these four acts of power where he raised him from the dead, he um, seated him at his right hand, he submitted everything under him, and then he appointed him to be the ruler over the world and the church, which is his body. But look, because the way all of these things interconnect is they're all connected in an organic way. And what Paul wants you to do is to grow in your knowledge of these things. And the first three wisdom, revelation, and the eyes of your heart enlightened. The first three tell how you can know. The next three of hope, riches, power tell you what you need to know. And then those final four things give you the ground of why you can know those things. So that's what we're going to look at as we kind of walk through these three things. First, the first three things he's praying for tell us how we can know. And then the second, uh, those three things tell us what we need to know, riches, inheritance, or uh, hope, riches, and power. And then the last four things give us the ground or tell us why we can know those things. So let's look first at how we can know. The first three things we see there, that he's praying for the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of him. And one of the things I love, I mean, the, the beauty of the Bible and the gospel is it takes up the whole person. It doesn't leave gaps or holes. And it's going to tell you that these three things are the three things you need if you're going to know something. I don't know if you've ever thought about, like, what does it mean to know something? And there's, according to the Bible, there's three pieces, uh, three elements that you have to have all working in conjunction if you're truly going to know something. It's wisdom, revelation, and an enlightened heart. So wisdom in the Bible is, uh, you know, don't think wisdom like some, you know, monk sitting on the mountain meditating or like yoga speaking or Yoda speaking in, you know, twisted sentences. Wisdom in the Bible is the, uh, the skill of living well. It's just the ability to live well, the ability to understand how life works and then conform your life accordingly. So wisdom is practic the practical skill of living well. And there's whole sections in the Bible that are dedicated to helping us live well. So wisdom is a life that's lived wisely, live well. But then revelation is the idea that God reveals to us his reality, his truth, his content. Revelation is truth or doctrine or things we need to know. Uh, coming, uh, wrestling with revelation is understanding the reality of the word, who God is, what he said, and how everything relates to that. So revelation is about your mind. Wisdom is about your life. And then notice the eyes of your heart be enlightened. That's about your emotions, that you're not just supposed to do the right thing, or you're not supposed to just know the right thing. You're supposed to feel the right thing or feel the right way about these things. So having the eyes of your heart enlightened is that you are an emotionally healthy person, that you, you feel the things that you should feel and the way you should feel them. And you actually need all three of those things to be mature. A healthy church and a healthy Christian has all three of those things working together. Now, one of the fascinating things is we all have a natural tendency to go towards one or the other. 
And you can kind of, so one of the things you're going to do, if you uh, are going to grow and be spiritually mature, you're going to have to be able to self-diagnose and know which tendency you are and know how you need to supplement those things in your life. And you can often tell about kind of which one of those three you tend towards is generally the things you complain about. So think about what are the things like in a church setting that you complain about that nobody does right. So that's generally the thing that you're going to gravitate towards. And actually, the thing you really might need to do is you might need to be in a place that they don't do it right so they can help bring balance to that area in your life. So often, just kind of FYI, often when people come and give, you know, when people give you advice, they're telling you more about them than you. So whenever like people give you marriage advice, they're telling you about their marriage, not yours. And so when people often come and give advice about church, about the things they need to do, and say, well, you know, all right, this is great, you have, you know, and what they'll normally highlight one of those three and say, we really need more teaching. Like, it's not, like, academic enough. Like, you got your PhD, but you tell stories. Why do you do that? Why waste time? Like, we need more of this. Or we need more, like, emotion. The worship is so dry. Come on, we need some banner waivers. And we need more engagement. Or, you know, we need more practical things. No, but who's doing the thing on how to, you know, have a good marriage or spend your money, you know, wisely? Where's the Dave Ramsey stuff? And you can normally tell where people fall to that that's their tendency. That's their default. And actually, the answer for you might be less banner waivers and more theology classes, because you might need to be moved into a direction of health and balance. But actually, a healthy church has all three of those things. So one of our goals is to have things that are going to help all of us grow in each area. But one of the troubles is we all have our natural tendencies, and so we'll, we'll lean to a certain area, then we'll collect people around us that lean to that area, and then to feel better about ourselves, we'll start bragging about that area and putting down people who, are in, who do other things that we don't do. But healthy people, healthy Christians, they have all three. You need to be wise. You need to know how to live well. You need to have truth. You need to know what we believe. And then it needs to shape you, and you need to feel it. And you need to love what God loves and hate what God hates. All of those have to work in conjunction if you're going to be healthy. And it's true for individual Christians. It's true for churches. It's true, true for churches in communities. If the churches in the community are going to be strong and have a unified presence where we really make an impact in this community, we need people doing all three of those things. So do some self-diagnosis in your own heart. What area do I need help in? And then what area can I help in, help people? Uh, And that's going to really shape how we think about and do discipleship here. We need all three of those things in our life, wisdom, revelation, and enlightened heart. But notice the next thing as he talks about, what do we need to know? What is that we need to experience and know? And we need to know the hope of his calling. We need to know the riches of his inheritance and his power that's at work in us. Hope. First thing is hope. And what's interesting is all week I was working on the, I I had this great, well, you know, it's always great in your mind. It's never really great in the reality. But I was, the whole time I was working, it was the hope of our calling, and I was going to t- I was just on the track of thinking about, all right, well, how do we find our calling? What's the calling that God, the unique special calling that God has for your life, the things he wants you to do? How can you look at your own like abilities, affinities, opportunities you have so you can see what God is calling you to do in life? But then as I kept reading it, it actually doesn't say the hope of your calling. It says the hope of his calling. 
Those actually are two different things. He does have a calling in your life, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not the hope he wants to grip you. It's the hope of his calling. And you think about when he first called you, he called you out of darkness into life. He called you out of death into life. And that was, that was wrapped up. There was a hope in that calling. And he wants you to experience that. See, all of our callings don't necessarily begin with us asking God to direct us. They begin with God calling us to life, calling out to us. He calls first, and then we respond. So think about in the Bible, different people, the way God comes and calls them. Remember in the garden, when Adam and Eve ascend and they, had, they were hiding. And then what does God do? It says he comes and he calls to Adam. Where are you? What have you done? And even in that calling, there's hope. Because Adam can't fight what he refuses to face. And so God is going to call him first. You have to face the reality of the way sin has broken you. But you think about other callings as they progress, like God calls out to Abraham or Abram in the land of Ur. He calls him to leave his home, leave his family, and go where he's going to show him. But that calling has, is wrapped up in hope. It's a promise. I will be with you. I will bless you. Through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And then Moses, God calls out to him from the burning bush and tells him his name and tells him he's going to be with him and it's going to be through him he's going to redeem his people and display to the, to the world his greatness. And if you were with us as we walk through the Gospel of John in the first couple of chapters, Jesus calls out, chapter 1, to his disciples. He calls them by name and beckons them. He says, come and see. And he starts with four and then 12 and then it grows to 120. And then you remember what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road. Jesus knocks him off his horse and blinds him. Then he calls out, Saul, Saul. He calls to him. He says, why are you persecuting me? So this call addresses us and it's wrapped up in, a, in the hope that he has for us. But then you read through all, all throughout the Old New Testament, there's so many things that says, what does he calling us to do? Like in 1 John 1, 3, he calls us into fellowship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. In uh, 1 Corinthians, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 2, 2 Timothy 1, he says we've been called to be saints, called to be holy. We've been called in Galatians 5 into freedom. You don't remain in bondage as a slave because he's called you to freedom. In Ephesians 4, he says we've been called to be one body, and in 1 Peter 2, he says, we've called, we are called to follow in his steps and suffer as he has suffered. And then in uh, 1 Peter 2, uh, 21, he says, but that calling is a calling to glory. So you see all of these things are wrapped up in what he's calling us to. He's called us to holiness. He's called us to freedom. He's called us to peace. But he's also called us to suffer and then to enter into glory. But what you see here is the central dynamic of the, the relationship between God and his people is that he calls out to them and then they respond. They walk in a manner. They hear. They respond. That's the dynamic. And that's what we hope that you experience every Sunday when you come into uh, worship here. Our goal is that you hear the voice of the risen Lord calling out to you through his word speaking to you personally, addressing you, telling you about how you need to grow, change, things you need to start, things you need to stop, encouraging you, letting the word come alive and speak to you. 
Because that's what the Bible is. The Bible is not a textbook like your anatomy textbook or a physiology book or some other type of history book. It's the living voice of the living Lord that's meant to speak to us and call out to us. And do you know the frustration of when like a parent calls out to a child and they don't respond? We almost... I was about to say Cynthia and I both almost lost our religion. Uh, But uh, we were at the store and one of our daughters was, it became enamored in certain things and she was being called to and didn't respond. Even though she heard us, she didn't respond. And then you think about it, I had the funny uh, privilege because it's it's funny because it's not in a stage of life we're in. And when you look at parents wrestle at things that aren't in the stage you're in, it's funny. And it was a parent who had a college student. And some of you might know this experience where they've called them and they're not responding. And they're off at college. And they say, let's get this straight. I pay the bill. As long as I pay the bill, I expect an answer to the call. Now, you don't have to answer in that moment, but with it, I expect a return call in the next day or two because there's the calling that is being issued forth and there's an expectation that you're going to be, be responded to. And that's what God is, uh, what Paul is saying here is you need the, the hope of his calling is that he's sending this call forth and then it's our job, he's praying for them that they'll respond, that they'll respond and they'll feel it and respond. But God speaks and we respond. Then a couple other things quickly. You see the inheritance of his saints. If it's the case that God's call points back to the beginning of the Christian life, it's God's inheritance that's going to point forward to the end. And you can see in verse 14 where he talks about the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. But there's this fascinating little phrase here that uh, the inheritance is wrapped up in the saints. And it's so interesting because what Paul wants them to experience is that the heavenly inheritance is not like the stuff. It's not like the gold you can chip off from the streets and put in your pocket. It's the relationship that happens in the saints. See, like what makes life meaningful is meaningful relationships. And he says the inheritance you have is the power of the relationships that will be forged and that come to completion there. And so it's the inheritance wrapped up. It's future-oriented, but it's relationally focused. And then the power of his might. God's call looks back to the beginning. The inheritance looks at the ending. The power is what's going to fuel you to get from here to there. It's the power that's going to bring you from here to bring you to there. And I find it so interesting is notice Paul starts to talk about the power that he wants them to experience. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? And it's interesting because commentators will look at the Greek and they just kind of throw their hands and say, like, Paul is being so excessive. He uses the word for hyper, then mega, and then power, dunamis, dynamite. And so it's like it's like the superabundant hyper mega power that you can experience. And then once he starts saying that, then he goes on this, this, this almost like rabbit trail that gets him rolling about what is that power like? And then it's the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I just think it's interesting as, and I don't know if Paul was like me or I'm just kind of reading my own personal experience into this, but there's certain things, you know, it doesn't matter how shy you are or how reserved you are or how introverted you are, there's certain things that will get you talking. There's just certain things that, you know, you kind of prick people in certain areas and it just starts coming out. And it could be, I mean, it could be golf, it could be photography, it could be cooking, it could be essential oils, where you just prick somebody and then they, it just all starts flooding out. And you, we all have those things. But what's so fascinating is for Paul, it's the power of Christ, or the power of God displayed in Christ. It just, gets, it just starts gushing. And then it, it just starts flowing out of him. And it's worth pausing and thinking about, what are the things that just start flowing out of us? then how can I orient myself so more of this comes flowing out? What comes flowing out of him is praise and prayer. Or these are things that flow out of us. But <clears throat> he says, I want you to know, not just know, but to experience this power. And this gives us actual the grounds of how we can know and experience all these things. How can we experience the wisdom, the knowledge, and then the, the heart change? And then how can we know our hope, the riches of the inheritance, and the power? It's all rooted in what God has done through Christ for us. And what he's going to show, there's four verbs that show um, what he has done. And those four co coincide with the two great enemies and two great realities. The two great enemies that we have to know are defeated, or none of this matters. And then the two great realities that can shape us. So look first at the way he overcame the two great enemies when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. See, he has overcome the two great enemies of death and evil. Uh, his resurrection overcame death. His enthronement at God's right hand overcame, has overcome all evil, and the victory is assured. And the resurrection and ascension are these decisive demonstrations of God's divine power. And see, there are two powers that we are powerless to do anything about. There are two realities that no matter how sophisticated you are, how savvy you are, how strong you are, you cannot stop. And that's death and evil. We're all mortal, and death comes for us all. And then we're all fallen, and we're all tainted by sin and evil. And with his resurrection and his ascension, he has conquered over both of them. And that's what gives the ground for our hope. That's what is our future inheritance. And that's what fuels the power that can help us. And then there's the two realities that he says he has put all things under his feet and given him as head over all things to the church. So he is head of all things, especially the church. And this actually is one of the macro metaphors that Paul uses for the church. Christ is the head, it is his body. And he's going to work out all throughout Ephesians how this plays itself out. So we won't look at that this morning. But now just I want you to think about, all right, what, is, what does that actually mean? So if you were actually at a wedding and you were sitting across the table and it was Paul, not the VP of the Water Authority, and you asked him, all right, tell me what you knew. You know, if I knew what you knew, could I sleep at night? Paul wouldn't say, no, you wouldn't sleep at all. He'd say, oh, you would sleep so soundly. Like, if you knew what I knew, if you knew what Christ, who Christ is and what he's done for you, oh, if you knew the hope that you have in him, it would transform your life. If you knew the inheritance that was waiting for you, it would free you and release you from all your, your, the prison of the now you're in. 
Oh, if you knew the power that could be displayed and unleashed in your life, you would sleep so well. You could have this confident hope. What it would mean, it would mean that your best days are always in front of you. So you don't have to anxiously look at your life feeling like somehow something has been lost. You don't have to anxiously look in the mirror each morning counting all the new wrinkles because it doesn't matter. Your best days are in front of you. So that hope can change you. So that you wouldn't be imprisoned by the past or you wouldn't be chained by the present because you'd have this hope of this calling. And one of the things the hope of the calling means is that your life is always this grand adventure. You have no idea. Uh, we were recently talking to someone, and it was just so interesting because they were talking about our life has turned out so different than what we thought. But it's better because you have the confident hope that he's bringing you along to a place. He's with you, and he's walking with you. And what his power means is that he can take any amount or element of the brokenness and turn it for your good. And just like Joseph, when Joseph went through in Genesis all the difficulties and the darkness of being falsely accused and abandoned and, and thrown into prison, and then at the end he can say, you, all of you people, meant all of these things for evil, but God meant it for good. And when I look back on the last 20 years, I can see his hand of goodness. And it's often, you know this in life, it's often through the brokenness that we experience that we then in turn become the means by which we help other people or find our calling in life. So Paul says, we comfort others with the comfort we received from him. I was reading this past week one of Jonathan Edwards' uh, very first sermons. He was an American preacher in the 1700s and one of America's greatest preachers, theologians, philosophers. And uh, he preached this sermon when he was 18, which... I thought, yeah, I'm 38, so I got 20 years on him, and it was a lot better than this one you just heard. But uh, it was on God's power, and he had three simple points. He said, for the Christian, what does God's power mean? It means that, first, all of your bad things will eventually be turned for good. You can trust, you have the hope that all of your bad things will eventually be turned for good. He can work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. What does his power mean? It means all the good things you have can never ultimately be taken away. Because the best thing you have is to know him and have him and death has been defeated. So even the best things you have, you can't ultimately lose. And then what does his power mean? It means your best things are yet to come. The best things in your life are still yet to come, all by the power of God. So let's just pause now and let's just pray these things and ask the Lord to work these things into the reality of our life. We need help in all three of those areas, in, the, in wise living, in right thinking, and right feeling. And then we need to know what is our hope, what is the riches of his inheritance, and what is the power in our life. So let's pray together.